Okay, so good afternoon and welcome to Ask Me Anything About Employment with Oscar Jimenez-Solomon. My name is Joan Rapp from Boston University and I will be your moderator today. This webinar is not a presentation, but an interactive question and answer period. For the next hour, Oscar will take your questions about engaging in the vocational process, job search, employer supports, um, finances, etc. He is a research scientist and research coordinator at the New York State Psychiatric Institute's Center of Excellence for Cultural Competence at Columbia University Medical Center. And we're very fortunate to have Oscar today. Our event is part of the National Resources Center on Employment, jointly funded by the National Institute on Disability and Rehabilitation Research and the Center for Mental Health Services, two federal agents. Content of this webinar does not re reflect those agencies' views or policies, and you should not assume endorsement by those. During the registration, you are given the chance to submit a question in advance. Over the course of the webinar, we'll alternate between questions that you submitted in advance and the ones that you have today. And if you have questions today, right under Oscar's yellow and blue tie, you will see a blank box. Go down to the bottom of that box where it says everyone just above there, there's a little white box. You can type your question in there and then hit the little balloon and it will show up for everyone to see. So that would be a good way of doing it. If you wish, if you prefer to use the phone, then you're going to um, have a, a, a little extra step where you're going to um, let us know first in the chat box phone and then we'll explain what to do. You're going to press star star on your phone and that will unmute you. But don't do it now, okay? All right, your participation is critical to the success of this event because we don't want Oscar to be on a podium. We're expecting this to be um, a joint learning endeavor. As a reminder, if you have joined us by telephone, please be sure to mute your computer speakers before asking a question. It will cause an echo sound that is not pleasant. So welcome to this webinar, and I hope you enjoy the next hour. We'll get started with a question submitted during the registration, and um, this is a good one for Oscar to start with. Oscar, please talk about what you mean, and this was a quote right from the announcement of the webinar, increasing income and keeping some of my benefits. I don't understand how it all works. So how's that for a question? That's a great start. That's a great start. Well, first I just want to uh, thank you, Joan and David Blair, uh, of the Boston University uh, Center for Psych Rehab and uh, the National Resource Center on Employment for inviting me to be uh, with you all this afternoon. I'm, I'm very excited to, uh, to uh, have this chat with you on this topic. It's very close to my heart for a number of reasons. Um, uh, most important is because I, uh, I not only work professionally in this area, but I'm also someone who experienced the, really, the uh, the hard impact of not being able to work, being out of work, uh, and living in poverty, and and uh, really struggling for a long time, uh, primarily because of uh, the uh, you know lacking the supports uh, during uh, the time that my recovery started. So this topic is not only important to me professionally, but also very important to me uh, at a personal level, and that's why I'm so passionate about it. And uh, you know, the, the first perhaps disclaimer I might want to say is that the uh, I, I will do my best to answer some of the individual questions, but and I will be sharing some resources that I hope are helpful to people 
or for providers who are um, online. Uh, but what is very important for me to say is that in the area of building assets, improving financially, improving income, accessing work incentives, or any other supports that might help any one of us or someone that you support to increase income or assets while receiving benefits, it's very, very important that you or the person that you support seek uh, individualized benefits advice. Uh, and uh, I will say more about that. But that is really, really, if there's one thing that I really hope that uh, all of you can actually walk away from here, there are two messages. One of them is that it is possible to increase income, to have earned income, to accumulate a number of assets uh, while transitioning to work and still keep, be able to keep many of the benefits that have been helpful to many of us in, uh, as part of our supports or as transition supports. Uh, uh, some might actually choose to, to give it a shot to, uh, to try without them. And for some people uh, who don't necessarily want to do that, there are many options in between of keeping some of the benefits to be able to keep, to be able to earn income. Uh, so what we mean when we say to be able to work and keep some benefits is that there are a number of programs from Social Security and from other agents that help people and that can help people. And some of them, and there's one that is very, very new. That is, it's an airplane that is just about to actually take off in the next few months to help people with disabilities or receiving uh, Social Security benefit to earn income through work, to accumulate some savings or other assets and uh, keep some of the benefits that, that they have, both cash benefits and also health benefits. Uh, so that's the general answer. I mean, certainly uh, we can talk a little bit about some of the examples um, you tell me, John, if that would be helpful, perhaps, to just give one example of one of the programs that that uh, we're referring to when we say be able to keep benefit, to be able to work, keep benefits, and still increase income and assets uh, uh, among all the programs and resources that are available. Sure. Why don't you give us an example, and if you could give us a clue about what this new plane is that's going to take off. Okay, wonderful. Okay, so uh, uh, just going to jump to uh, to one example. Let me start actually with some exciting news because actually uh, this is uh, this is something that probably many of you have not uh, had the chance to hear about yet because it's still in the works, although it has already been approved at the federal level. Um, let me actually uh, start with what I think is a very exciting news. Uh, for for people with disabilities across the country, uh, in uh, December, about six months ago, uh, the uh, the U.S. Congress passed a new uh, law, federal law, that is called ABLE, as in A B L E, or achieving life a better life experience. And what that act, that federal law, uh, has done is create a major, major shift in uh, one of the most crippling uh, rules that Social Security has, that has affected many people on Social Security 
especially Social Security uh, Supplemental Security Income uh, or SSI, which is the limitation that many people have to be able to accumulate any savings and still remain eligible for SSI and for Medicaid. So the long and short of it is, is that ABLE or achieving a better life experience is a federal law that allows each state in the country to create programs, create these programs called ABLE accounts, which is a, specifically a savings account for people with, uh, this is what the law says, significant disabilities. And that uh, still being um, defined more specifically by the uh, Department of Taxation by the federal government. For people whose disability appeared uh, before the age of 26, which does limit uh, uh, the eligibility, uh, and that will allow uh, people to save money tax exempt at levels that we have never seen in the U.S. without affecting SSI and uh, Medicaid eligibility. And uh, what those levels are, are uh, up to $14,000 per year, meaning that if either I, a family member, or someone in my life decided to help me save up to that amount, up to $14,000 would be tax-exempt and placed in a, I would be able to place them in an ABLE savings account and not affect my eligibility for SSI. At this point, the asset limit for people on SSI is $2,000, as uh, hopefully most of you know, and also Medicaid. This means that uh, someone could have, uh, could be able to work or through also contributions of family members, uh, be able to save with, without having to pay taxes and without having to affect their eligibility uh, up to that amount per year and up to $100,000 uh, in a lifetime which means that uh, for the first time, really, it opens up, for example, the opportunity for people to save money in a retirement account. Because up until this point, SSI uh, and Medicaid eligibility uh, has been affected by retirement accounts, uh, for example, by private retirement accounts. And uh, uh, so that's the long and short of it. Uh, the, the, the hiccup is that uh, these programs are not still available. Uh, states are working on it, and some of them are further ahead than others. Uh, and they uh, uh, they should be available uh, in many states towards the end of this year, so that people who are eligible can actually start benefiting. Uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring this up is because both through my personal experience and through work I've done, at times I've seen uh, uh, Situations where people, uh, maybe supported by misinformed providers, uh, have been able to work and have been able to uh, save a little money because they were complementing their uh, the money that they earned through work. And whenever they were reaching $2,000, they were encouraged or prompted basically spend it in um, things that were not necessarily needed. For the person, 
and what this because many people don't, didn't necessarily feel that they had an opportunity to put some money aside for things like education, housing, transportation, employment, or many other expenses. This program will allow you to do that. Will allow people who are eligible to uh, to do that and uh, and be able to build some uh, savings uh, for things that uh, are needed for the for for the person and that um, are not affecting eligibility for SSI and Medicaid. So uh, you tell me if that gives you a, a, a kind of a basic a, a idea of what this what this new program is is going to be allowing people. Yeah, and I'd just like to add to that, um, and people can look this up as well, the um, IDA, which uh, in, I think it's Independent Development Account, which allows people to save money and have the money they save towards a home or towards their education be matched by two other agencies. So that's a really great one. So if you put these two things together where people can show more more savings and then get it matched, there's a triple benefit there. Okay. Um, very, very, very much. And, and you know, I'll just um, – thank you, Joan. And, uh, I just put on the on the computer on the on the screen uh, a lot of information on those individual development accounts. Uh, maybe I'll share this. This is actually a link to a um, database of individual development accounts that are available throughout the country. Unfortunately, it's not comprehensive because no one is able to centralize them. What I would encourage you is uh, to find out through your uh, community and especially credit unions in your communities if they have individual development accounts. Because uh, many of these develop individual development accounts are unfortunately very hidden and, uh, and they're usually not very large programs, so not everybody can have access to them, but they can be helpful to people. Uh, I wanted to share the example, the story of a, of a friend actually, who uh, uh, shared with us uh, how he and his wife, uh, his name is Pilot, and his wife Joan were able to save, they live in Syracuse, New York, uh, where, just to give an example of how these individual development accounts work, uh, uh, they found a credit union in their town in Syracuse that uh, matched, for each dollar that they saved, matched it with four. So their goal was to save $1,875, and they did. They were able to do that in, in about a year and a half, and the uh, credit union matched it with $7,500, which gave them over $9,000 that w they were able to use as a down payment for uh, for their home. And uh, uh, they were able to uh, close on their home uh, a little bit over three years ago and be able to actually... Uh, accomplish their dream of saving for a home. And that is one of the examples of uh, the goals that IDA is allowed to do uh, uh, is to save towards uh, buying a home. The other two that are also available in many communities are to start a business so that someone can actually work and have, be self-employed. And the other one is to uh, go back to school. Beautiful story, Oscar. Okay, so Richard, uh, uh, we thank you for your question. Uh, we uh, what I see here is, I'm going to just read the question, if I use the saved money to uh, gain assets, does that count against $100,000 lifetime savings? 
And what I understand, Richard, if I get this right, is would would the $100,000 be a lifetime maximum? And uh, if, let's say, for example, I or is, is it like any given point, meaning that if I spend $20,000, do I still have up to $100,000 uh, in total? Uh, Richard, I do not know the answer to that. And... I think, that it, and I may be wrong, but I think that is one of those uh, uh, pieces that the federal government and the Department of Taxation is uh, is trying to figure out, which is sort of the uh, the, the more specific uh, ins and outs of how this is going to work, the eligibility criteria, and how it's going to also increase. One of the other things that I, that we know is that. Right now, it's fourteen thousand and a hundred thousand, but that those amounts are going to increase each year with the cost of living increases. Uh, but if I actually um, let me look through my notes here, and maybe uh, if I actually uh, can corroborate, uh, uh, can find information uh, that maybe I'm not remember, and I will uh, make sure to mention it in a few minutes. Okay. Uh, and Stacy asks about sharing the slide again. I just want to mention that this uh, session is being recorded. It will be put on our website, and you can access it at any time if that's helpful to you. Sure. And uh, just in case it helps, Stacy, uh, here's the uh, the website: uh, cfed.org, cfed.org, and that should bring you. You can also Google it very simply in the Visual Development Accounts C, as in Charlie. F as in Frank, E as in Edward, D as in David, uh, and uh, that will bring you to a database that is actually fairly large. It's actually by, listed by state, but like I said, it's not comprehensive. So if you do not see uh, programs very close to you, do not get discouraged. What I would encourage you is to uh, contact some other uh uh, resources that uh, um, I'd like to share with you, especially people who are more familiarized with benefits and benefits advisement in your community. Okay, great. Um, the next question, I think you've kind of partially answered already, but I'll throw it out in case uh, you can think of something else. Um, this person says, as you're approaching retirement sooner rather than later, are there any options available to, quote, play catch up while you are still working? So I think what the person is saying is how can they um, save more for their retirement because they don't have much waiting for them? Yeah, I, um, I, if I understand your question, it, it, um, it, there, there are two options that, um, that come to mind, uh, and it would depend on as to whether or not uh, you are working. Of course, if you are working or you're able to work or in, uh, able to go back to work, uh, one option would be to try to increase your contributions uh, on a monthly basis or by weekly basis, depending on how you get paid. One of the, um, the advantages, evidently, of doing that is not only that you'd be able to obviously save more uh, from your current income if you can, if you can actually uh, afford it if between the earned income or any other supports that you might have, but also because uh, any money that you contribute towards retirement is tax exempt. So for each $10 that you contribute towards retirement, uh, it's $10 that you're not gonna have to pay taxes on. So it's, uh, 
it's a bigger contribution than as if you were using the $10, taking the $10, paying taxes on them, and putting them in a savings account. It's definitely if you have an employment uh, that um, allows you or that gives you an opportunity to save towards retirement, uh, meaning a retirement account, uh, an employer-sponsored retirement account, uh, it's definitely worthwhile. Your dollars are going to go much further uh, because they're going to be tax exempt. Another option, if you qualify for, uh, which I think is the part that probably John referred to that, that uh, hopefully it can be helpful to people as well, is that if once uh, once these ABLE accounts, accounts are available uh, and you are eligible for, and if you're eligible for this ABLE account, one of the ways that uh, one can actually save uh, towards retirement is actually through that uh, savings account, through the ABLE account, uh, and um, uh, because it would allow you to pay for essential expenses in the future. There would be, again, those monies would be tax ex exempt because they would be protected under this new uh, federal act. Another advantage is that um, if uh, uh, there's anyone uh, or any other means by which uh, you can actually get contributions, like for example, a family member or someone that would be able to uh, to help you put money aside, those monies can also be included on the uh, ABLE account, uh, which right now is something that cannot be done. Uh, for example, the IDAs, just to give an idea, the individual development account is only for earned income. And that is one of the advantages of this, this new legislation, this new program, the ABLE achieving a better life experience, because it will allow not only earned income, but also uh, gifts or contributions from other people uh, that uh, that may be willing. So those are the two uh, the two options that uh, I would summarize for you is one to uh, to try to increase the contributions to uh, to catch up. One of the things that I would suggest with that uh, that um, we're currently doing a study on trying to better understand uh, how many of us actually access counseling services for financial matters and what we can tell you is that what we're finding is that a very very small percentage of us and people in recovery and also uh, uh, providers actually uh, uh, use uh, or rely or have ever used financial advisors uh, there are people out there that are, and programs in many communities that are willing to provide financial advice to people for free for people who have low income or moderate income, middle income, and including plan for retirement. And someone can actually, someone who knows about retirement accounts should be able to help you figure out, uh, for example, if you're able to put aside $50 from each paycheck, how much you may expect to receive in addition to Social Security through a private retirement account. So I would encourage you to do all of that, to uh, consider an ABLE account if you're eligible, to consider uh, increased contributions that would be tax exempt through your employer, and third, to tap into free uh, retirement and other financial uh, counseling that may be available in your community 
uh, and there are many programs. Uh, one of the the sad things I think is that our many of our organizations, whether they are mental health programs or even peer programs, uh, uh, have not been really connected with the financial community and really need to make a better effort to do that. Uh, and if you're a provider, I would encourage you very much to get to know the financial providers in your area uh, that are outside of the disability, that are just part of the community and that help people because they have low income or middle income and uh, they're meant, you know, their mission, just like many of our programs, our mission is to help people with a mental health condition or a mental health recovery. Many of those programs are there to help people uh, to improve economically. And we really need to make a better effort at bridging those. Thanks, Oscar. Um, all right. Yeah. This is a question which we hear all the time. We've heard it in even some of the other Ask Me Anything webinars. Um, and I'm going to say what the question is, and then I'm going to restate the question so that it gets a different answer, if that's legitimate. The question is, I'd like to learn as much as I can about how to retain SSI, SSDI benefits while working. So that's the most common question that we hear. Now I'm going to th throw a question out and rephrase it in a different way. And the way I rephrase it is, how can I maximize my income? Because they really have two different answers. And I think maximizing income is more important than how to retain benefits while working. Um, okay, there you go. If you don't okay. like what I did, you can go back to the original question. Sure, no problem. I will start with the original one. Let me share. Uh, this is probably something that was already discussed in other, uh, in other webinars, uh, but I'll just uh, reiterate it in case the person who brought this up, uh, you know, wasn't part of that. And it's never not, never a bad idea to say it uh, a few more, which is, uh, if I understand, the person referred to uh, SSI and SSDI, correct? Yes. Okay. All right. So, uh, so I am not a benefits advisor, and I am actually not an expert in uh, Social Security benefits. And I say that for two reasons. One is uh, because... Uh, what I like is actually to at uh, times simplify the message just enough to uh, create some trouble and at the same time to uh, to just communicate the the gist of it um, which I think many of us do need to hear again I will say if you're considering working and are currently receiving SSI and SSDI I cannot stress enough how important it is that you personally seek benefits advisement. It's absolutely fundamental uh, because you may miss opportunities that you're eligible for because because each situation is uh, particular or you also want to make sure that you avoid any problems in the future. Okay. Now having said that I'll just mention the two most important what I believe are the two most important programs uh, and again this is uh, coming more from having spoken to many, many people who are having exactly the same question that you have, which is, how do I even consider it? If you receive Social Security disability, a very important work incentive or Social Security program that you should know about is this thing called trial work period, which really is exactly what it sounds like. It's a period of time 
that Social Security gives you to try work without affecting your eligibility for SSDI. And SSDI, again, uh, the D is very important there. It's disability, right? It's for those who are actually receiving Social Security disability uh, insurance and who may have actually worked in the past or who may have actually, um, sort of say it in short, inherited uh, benefits from their parents if they were disabled when they were very young. Uh, what this incentive allows people is if I receive Social Security disability, um, I've been able to go back to work. Uh, it's already been over 10 years, and I'm very grateful that I've been able to work now for a number of years and and uh, and be able to support myself and be able to make enough income to support my. If I was able, if I was to become disabled today or tomorrow, probably my Social Security income. I'm sorry, my Social Security disability SSDI would be significant. Let's say that it was $2,000 a month. Okay. Uh, if at some point in the future, and I was eligible for Social Security disability, I wanted to go back to work, and I'm receiving a check, an SSDI check for $2,000, it means that I would be able to work for up to nine months using this trial work period and make $2,000 $3,000 a month, or I'm knocking uh, on the table here, or more, and not affect my Social Security disability income, meaning my SSDI check, for at least nine months. So that's basically how the trial work period works. If your SSDI check is $1,000, you can make $1,000 for nine months, 2000 3000 a month for nine months and not affect your uh, Social Security disability, which which I think is important for what you're saying, Joan, is that it, it is, it, it would allow, I mean, it is meant to help people transition. I've actually known many people who, during those nine months, they've been able to save significant amount of money, and that has enabled them to then do important things, like, for example, get an apartment, get a car, be able to actually invest in the next step, go to school, get a cert complete their certificate program, uh, go back to school for a year to finish their bachelor's or their associate's degree that they left unfinished. It gave them, given them a cushion to be able to then say, you know what, I'm going to jump off to the next level. So that's one of the programs that uh, is really, really important. And uh, there are many nuances, and I'm not going to spend much more time because, again, hopefully you will not make decisions based on what I'm saying right now, but you will go to a benefits advisor, right? <laughs> uh, the other program that is really important for people to know, for people who are in SSI, or Supplemental Security uh, Income, which is usually for people who don't have a lot of work experience, didn't get the chance to work a lot, or didn't make a lot of money, and now they're receiving SSI which is usually much, much less, um, somewhere around $800 uh, a month these days, right? There is this program, which is special payments for SSI recipients, and it's also called 1619A, that the long and short of it is that gives people on SSI who go, go back to work a reduced check, 
That's the short story. It gives basically someone on SSI sort of like a prorated check, which is more or less like this. For every dollar that someone, for, I'm sorry, for every $2 that someone earns, more or less a dollar gets deducted from their check. So for example, if my check is, if I actually, uh, if, I, if I get a job and I'm getting SSI, and I am. I get a job, and I make eight hundred dollars a month at that job. More or less, their SSI check will be deducted about four hundred. But if you can do the math, you can tell that between the money that I'm making, which is eight hundred dollars a month in earned income through my job, plus even the deducted check, which is would be about four hundred, I'm still better off. I'm still actually maximizing the amount that I earn in total. And hopefully that, for a period of time, will allow me to um, maybe, again, uh, get some more work experience, uh, build back my resume, build up my resume, or go back to school part-time through some other vocational rehabilitation program, and maybe in a couple of years, be able to take another job that will allow me to uh, to let go of Social Security income altogether and uh, will have given me a cushion for a period of time. Uh, so those are those are options and uh, and there are many others. Uh, you know, uh, you probably will have or have already had uh, uh, webinars already focused on on these work incentives, which are really very complicated. Um, but I just want to make sure that people are definitely reminded of these two, because these are two very basic uh, work incentives that allow people to to maximize the income that they receive, uh, leveraging basically kind of mixing up some benefits and also some earned income. So, John, you're um, uh, you're actually reframing the question. Can you tell me a little bit about what uh, what well, angle you were uh, thinking about, just to make sure maybe I can actually speak to that well, second angle a little bit? It gets back to your advice about being sure that you meet with an ex expert benefit specialist because every story has so many different individual um, variables. So that uh, for one person, we can say, okay. Um, stay within $1,090 a month and you won't lose your SSDI and that will be your income. But there might be a better way by looking at the whole picture and all the incentives, there may be a much better way. I mean, the example you gave of having a larger deduction made, even if it's $5, um, there may be so many other variables to consider. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. In terms of you know, transportation benefits and um, you know what you can accomplish with a past plan, and and who you live with, and the other members of the family, and what their story is, and so you have to really think. It seems to me like the goal that most people have is to maximize their income more than their goal is really to keep something. Their goal is to maximize their income, and. Um, what happens is people work so hard to get these disability payments that they don't want to give them up. But if they have the whole picture with all the variables that apply to them, they might find that it's really worth their benefit to work and to work more hours than they thought. I mean, we have another question here that's from someone who um, 
works part-time at a grocery store and they want him to work more hours, um, but he doesn't like their health plan. Um, so that's another factor. It's like you have to put all these, all the ingredients in the pot to make the cake. You know, you can't leave out the flour and you can't leave out the shortening. You have to look at the whole picture. And I think because people ask this question so often, they get the this answer, which is, okay, earn this amount of money, keep your benefits. But that's not the real issue is people want to get out of poverty. And that's what we should be talking about, how to help people get out of poverty. Absolutely, Joan. Absolutely. You know, maybe I'll, I'll just to make your point, Joan, um, I... You know, I'll comment on 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 a couple of uh, resources that um, that may be very specific, like you say, uh, to to each person, you know, to, to an individual, and that uh, that I can, uh, yeah, I cannot agree more with what you're saying, Joan. That it's so important that someone gets uh, specific advisement. And to explore, to really leave, uh, not leave every uh, any stone unturned, because, uh, for example, um, and I'm actually having a little trouble here sharing my screen again. Um, well, I will comment on it verbally while I try to figure this out. Um, for example, one of the um, one of one of the 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 opportunities that that may be that some people may be eligible for is uh, this work incentive called impairment-related work expenses, uh, or IRWEs, I-R-W-E, which is basically an incentive that allows people who receive SSI or SSDI to get a bit of a break uh, or expenses they need in order to be able to work. So, for example, if someone can, uh, you know, very much needs to have an expense uh, that is essential that is because of their disability, like for example, a, a job coach uh, or certain type of transportation, right? Or certain type of accommodation. Uh, they could actually use this work incentive to be able to, um, to, to get a break and have some of their income not be counted, uh, which would allow people to actually have uh, at the end, more uh, at the end of the day. Uh, another one that typically we don't even think about when we think of Social Security, but it has to do with housing that many people uh, could be eligible. It has to do actually not with Social Security, but for example, with the housing uh, and urban development, HUD, right? So there's a program, for example, I don't know if uh, you've talked about it in your webinar series, Joan, uh, the earned income disregard for people who are in HUD? No, we didn't. No? Uh, which is actually, so it's HUD, if someone is receiving people on, uh, if someone is receiving a support uh, under a HUD program, uh, and typically how HUD works is that, for example, if someone is receiving, uh, is uh, has a rental, right, uh, their contribution is calculated based on the amount that they make about based on their income right so many people are afraid of uh, working because they're afraid that if they increase their income they will have to pay a lot more for the housing because they receive HUD support and uh, there's a program 
called the HUD Earned Income Disregard that allows people uh, to, for the first year that they return to work, to basically exclude, not count at all, 100% of their income uh, and not, not have it counted towards the recalculated payment for the rent for their apartment, for example, that they could be renting. And for the second year, uh, uh, 50% of their income. What that means basically is that someone who may be afraid of losing uh, immediately their uh, housing support could actually use that time also as a cushion to be able to save, to be able to um, either move to a different place or to um, be able to get stabilized or be able to have uh, a, a period of a year or two of getting an entry-level job and then moving on to the next level and hopefully getting, uh, uh, you know, getting into another position that will allow them to, uh, to increase their income. And uh, so those are some opportunities that, that, that are there for people. Uh, to be able to to leverage some of the resources that that they get. All right, let's see what other questions we have. Um, there was one question actually about uh, checking accounts and debit cards. Yes. Sure. yes. Uh, oh yeah, I am paid by a debit card because when I applied for a checking account, I was denied. Will I ever be able to get a bank account again? Uh, that's a really good question, and and John, I wanted to touch on that uh, because. Uh, certainly, we spend quite a bit of time talking about benefits um, and some of those incentives, but there's a very concrete reality is that um, bank accounts uh, can make a big difference for people. And uh, what I would encourage this person, the person who asked the question, is who, uh, as, as frightening as it can be, and uh, you know, as hard as it can be, and bring a peer, uh, bring a friend, or whoever you need to bring if you're having a hard time doing that by yourself. But actually uh, ask for probably what was the what the reason was that uh, that you were denied for a checking account, or probably may have happened, and it's not the only reason, is that maybe in the past uh, this person had a checking account and maybe there were some overdraft fees that were not paid. Maybe uh, it was left open and a check hit the account and the, there was some negative balance. And then the ba a bank probably um, reported the, the account as, um, let's say, in default because there was an amount owed to the bank. And it was placed on a national data, data, data set, uh, database, uh, just check systems uh, that put that person's name and social security number on that database that many banks will automatically disqualify someone who is on that database uh, to get a checking account because of what happened in the past. Uh, so what I would encourage that person is to, uh, to, to face, you know, and to find out exactly what it was because it could be $2,000 that maybe, uh, uh, are owed, uh, it could be $100 that may be more uh, feasible for you to pay or some settlement that you may be able to get to with the original bank that put in basically your name on that database. And, um, and uh, you know, 
I have known of many people who have been able to uh, find out that it was Bank of America seven years ago that I owed $200 and they were able to negotiate it, pick up the phone, call the bank, say I want to pay it, but I don't have all the money, what can you do for me? And they could actually either reduce the total debt, they could actually help you, allow you to pay it in installments, but basically get out of that situation so that then in the future you can open a checking account. Um, because certainly it does limit choices for everybody uh, to not have access to a checking account. Um, I don't know what debit card uh, you actually receive your uh, your your payments or your uh, uh, your earnings, um, but unfortunately, some debit cards, especially prepaid debit cards, have very high fees associated, and you're going to end up spending more at the end, perhaps. Uh, that happens to many people who have to go to uh, cash checking uh, places that are charged twenty, thirty dollars for each check cashed, which is money that. Um, Really, they're they're taken from your check, and that you're not seeing. Um, so it might take you a few months or two years, depending on what it is. But it's definitely worthwhile. One of the things that we see through the research and is that having a check-in on a savings account is a major predictor. It's a major factor in people being able to access in the future loans credit cards, be able to actually have financial stability. So it's definitely worthwhile the effort. And if you have uh, any feelings about the idea of picking up the phone or walking into a bank or finding out what it was that caused that problem, I totally understand it. Uh, and I would encourage you to get, get, you know, rely on some support from a provider, from a peer, someone who can help you walk through that. Because one of the things that we see a lot that I just want to bring the human aspect of all of this is what uh, some work that we're that I'm doing personally uh, here at our Center for Cultural Competence is on this idea is this uh, this area of financial shame. You know, many of us really struggle with feelings of shame and guilt um, and hopelessness around our financial situation. So let's face it. Let's face it for what it is. Uh, it is not easy because if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. There are uh, programs out there, but we know that it's not just the information or the understanding that something is available, but there's an emotional part to it that is the reason uh, why peer support around it or support from providers is so important so that we can actually just take the action, get a result. Um, I've had to do that many times as I have resolved financial issues in my own path. And I can tell you how much I feel like part of the uh, the weight is lifted every time that a little debt is repaid. And, and for many of us struggling with mental health uh, challenges and in recovery, that is a shame and a weight on our shoulders that we really can't afford and that we really, uh, that, that will hold us back. And uh, another important reason to uh, to you know, to face it with support, um, and to uh, you know, to honor that those feelings, and uh, and and just make small steps towards resolving an issue that may have uh, happened years ago when we were struggling. Uh, and uh, it's better now, never uh, than never. So.
that was what I wanted to say about that. Oh, that's a really, really great point, Oscar. Um, I, I'm afraid I skipped over the grocery store question a little bit too quickly, but uh, and we only have a couple minutes left, but you might want to comment on this. I work part-time at a grocery store, and they want me to work more hours. I have seen their health plan, and it is much worse than what I get now. Well, I lose my current health plan if I work full-time. I think another way of saying it is, do I have a choice whether I take the employer's health plan or my own health plan? Hmm. Um, so, uh, you, without knowing what uh, health plan this person actually has, I imagine that this person um, has some... Um, Probably you know, some, has a Medicaid... Uh, yeah, some kind of a publicly funded uh, health plan, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. Um, so if, if the way that it usually works is that uh, if someone, it, it, I, again, I, there are a lot of facts that are that are are, um, are hard to actually. Um, we're gonna have to make a few assumptions here. So what I'm seeing here is that for this person, they feel like the their employer uh, has would offer them a health plan if they actually worked full time. But they're feeling kind of in the conundrum. If they take the full time, they would probably have to let go of their Medicaid and go with this health plan that is not as good as what they have right now. That's what you understand too, John? Yes. Okay. All right. So this is the first this is what I would encourage this person to actually find out, uh, not knowing what uh what state this person is, is in, which is to find out is in your in your state there is um, a program called uh, the Medicaid buy-in for people with disabilities for working people with disabilities. Uh, many states are unfortunately they're not not all the state the states are not mandated to have this, but many states do have them. Uh, the federal government created this option many years ago. They have a program that allows people with disabilities who work to maintain Medicaid, keep Medicaid eligibility, even if they make or they earn a lot more than the typical asset limit and income limits. What I mean by that is, for example, in New York, uh, which is just one example, uh, in New York, someone can uh, earn somewhere and, and it's a little nuanced, it's a little complicated, but even up to $57,000 per year and be able to keep their Medicaid. Meaning, for example, if I understand this person correctly, if you were living in New York and the full-time job was a $35,000 a job, uh, uh, $35,000 uh, per year job, you would very likely, if you if you qualified for SSI or SSD, especially SSI, and have a disability, you probably would be able to keep Medicaid and and take be able to take that full time job. Um, and uh, and that um, so again, not knowing where that person uh, where that person is now. So that's actually if the employer did not offer uh, did not offer any any health benefit. Uh, things get more complicated, unfortunately, if the person, uh, if the person actually uh, has uh, access to health benefits through uh, their employer. And it, 
I'm not going to be able to answer that for everybody because my understanding actually will vary depending on uh, on on where the person is located. Um, but uh, there is a chance that you may be able to uh, keep your Medicaid. Uh, what I would encourage you is to again seek financial or um, benefits advisement around your health benefits, um, because I would not assume automatically that you will lose your health benefits uh, if you take the full-time job. Great, thank you, Oscar. And um, so I think everyone's going to run right out and find out if their state has the Medicaid buy-in, as well as um, this person will be able to contact at least their Medicaid office if not a benefit specialist, and find out what the story is with um, accepting this job full-time. So we want to thank you for uh, a very, a, I think, um, encouraging and optimistic and hopeful view of financial issues as they relate to work. And uh, we thank you so much for your time and for your slides. And if anyone's uh, question wasn't answered, we're going to try to write back to you um, with a resource or a response. Um, so thank you, everyone, and thank you, David, for um, shepherding us through from your sick bed. <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you, Joan and David, for the invitation. I, I have one final slide on the screen. Okay. Uh, I would encourage everyone, uh, virtually in every community, in every state, uh, there are independent living centers that have uh, benefits advisors and also Work incentives planning assistance, who have much of many of the uh, access to much of this information. I would encourage you to actually go to one of these websites and look for that uh, in your community. Uh, and thanks so much uh, again for the invitation. And um, I'm very uh, very glad that um, I had the chance to uh, speak to you all. And Thank good you luck. Thank you very much.